Oh, everybody, welcome to another episode of Transfigured. Um, I before I have a, a cool guest with me today, Cal Reve or Rivette. Um, but before uh, we get talking, I just wanted to give a little explanation um, for why there haven't been very many Transfigured episodes in a while. Um, the main reason is that my wife and I had a baby. So that's been very exciting. But for the couple of weeks before the due date, I didn't schedule any interviews because I didn't want to have to cancel on anybody last minute. But then the baby was 11 days uh, late after her due date. Um, so there were about three or four weeks where I didn't have any interviews scheduled. And then after that, I wanted to you know, get back to normal uh, at least a little bit with my family schedule before I felt comfortable scheduling anything. So uh, we're just starting to get up and running again. I've got a couple more interviews in the works. Um, Hank and I have our next uh, Church Fathers video lined up for not uh, next Friday, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow. Um, so uh, don't worry, Transfigured will be up and running soon. And uh, thank you for uh, your patience in the gap in the meantime. But uh, I have Cal with me today. So Cal is a friend that I sort of met through Luke Thompson and is sort of a member of the larger Paul Vanderclay community. Um, so Cal, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, so um, I'm I'm Cal, and that's really all about I. That's about all I can say for myself. I'm not a professional. Technically, I am, but not in this area. I'm not qualified to speak about any of the stuff I'm going to be discussing with Sam. Well, that's um, the funnest people to talk to because they're willing to take risks. <laughs> right, right. Except you, strangely, are qualified to talk about it. Like, like when I first when I first spoke to you, I didn't really know who you were. But my first sense was like, was like, whoa, this is just a high level guy. Like this guy sounds like he's somebody's college professor. Like, like um, I thought you were like a college professor because I didn't know what you did or like your history <laughs> or anything. And so I would say, Sam. But I know. I have no actual qualifications for okay. this. All of my degrees are in statistics. Yeah, uh, you know, right. and my right. career is in statistics, computer stuff. So. Uh, this right. theology thing is just sort of a, a side hobby, you know, yes. for me. And but it, it's also not just a hobby; it's an existential thing, right? Because it's important to our lives, right? We right. we care about these answers. We're not just like talking about I don't know Harry Potter or something like that. Although Harry Potter could be important for someone's life, I actually like Harry Potter. But uh, but you know, we care about this. So so you were saying that. You know, you uh, you had something of a, a come to Jesus moment. How how long ago was that? Yeah, so I had one come to Jesus moment that it didn't have any propositional content, and so it was like a like a Jesusless come to Jesus moment. And what happened that day was actually, in a way, very very small. But it reminds me of what Jesus says, where he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, um, and that was the day that it was planted. That was about. Mm, eight years before I had the propositional kind of come to G. Well, no, six, because when I was in grad school, I was very kind of existentially um, troubled. Um, and I, I found myself gravitating, you know, for reasons I couldn't explain to a version of Christianity, which says that you are called to Christianity for reasons that cannot be explained, namely, you know, Calvinist kind of physicalist, Christianity, but I felt it very half-heartedly, you know, and, and um, at that time, you know, I, I, I sort of, it is written, thou shalt not test, you know, the Lord your God, but, you know, I, I 
I did test Jesus because I was kind of, you know, I was chain smoking. I was just bitter. I was just like, you know, I didn't care and I didn't really believe. And I said, Jesus, if you're real, take, take this, take, you know, these, these, uh, you know, this habit for me. And he did. And I stopped smoking since then. However, I still didn't really believe like it wasn't enough of a miracle. I was just like, I don't know. I was just like seesaw, seesawing and, and just like a toddler just taught. You need to reverse the sheep fleece uh, and say, OK, great. You made the fleece wet. Now make everything but the fleece wet. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, well, and, and then about a year or two after that, um, um, I had been experimenting with psychedelics. Again, you know, I, I would say my faith at that time was not even really, it was it was so half-hearted, you wouldn't even call it faith. It was as much doubt as faith. And I had some experiences which themselves did not convince me of God's existence because I rationalized it as, yeah, you know, you were on drugs, like, literally, like you were on drugs. Like, and, and um, uh, but I, it, it made me reconsider the philosophical case for God in the ways that I hadn't before. And what those psychedelic drugs uh, did for me was they quickly broke the materialist uh, presuppositions and frame that I had been living in um, uh, ever since I was um, a teenager. And I kind of became, you know, I was raised Hare Krishna, interestingly. Mm -hmm. And then- So um, talk, could you talk a little bit more about that? What's it like to be raised Hare Krishna? Because I think what most people, including myself, really know about Hare Krishna is sort of like the heart evangelism and sort of almost like gotcha tricks at the airport or something oh, yeah. like that. But, but there isn't really any knowledge of what it's like deeper than, than that. Well, you know, and, and obviously it's going to vary tremendously from community to community. I think that the level uh, or the degree to which it was a cult um, is or maybe in some ways today in some places perhaps still functions as a cult, I don't know. But um, uh, w where I was raised at the time that I was there, you know, it wasn't what I would call cult-like, or if so, not very much. I don't think so. I think at other times, like in the 70s and 80s, and what you're talking about in terms of gotcha tactics, yeah, absolutely. I can think of certain, like, community leaders in different places, like um, Kirtanananda and um, uh, Hamsaduda, Guys, they were on drugs. They were doing crazy narcissist cult leader things. Like, and um, I think the person who was really in charge of the movement was so elderly that he wasn't really in charge. I mm -hmm. think for whatever it is worth, he was spiritually sincere. Um, but um, I think that he he essentially put people in positions of power that that once they had that power, they just abused it um, tremendously. That's that's interestingly similar to kind of the group that I grew up a part of or half a part of half not a part of right that was like sort of a Christian group that grew a lot in the 60s and 70s mainly with hippie baby boomers right that were spiritually curious it had pretty aggressive evangelism tactics and different pockets of it were more or less cult-like and I felt like I grew up in a very not cult-like part but when people hear about like my connections like well isn't that a cult i'm like well you know kind of, it depends where you are and who you're underneath and how they're behaving and it's you know there are good people that have good motivations and then there are bad people that you know and because the group is new and doesn't have a lot of history or leadership structures or various institutional habits and measures that prevent cult likeness you know 
it, it, it bubbles up and, and, you know, can corrupt people and stuff. So that, that's interesting that, that it's, although mine was Christian, not Hare Krishna. I, I would like to clarify um, that, that um, the only reason I'm hesitant to say, I know it wasn't cult like where I was growing up is that I was a child and I wouldn't have been aware of everything that was going on. But as far as I know, you know, the people who were in leadership roles at the time that I was growing up, um, and I mean that very specifically, because the generation before me and the school that I went to, they were actually quite seriously abused in, in all different ways. Um, but there was a change of leadership. Um, and, you know, when I went into that school, it was it was actually, I would say, an extremely uh, uh, good environment, academically, safety-wise, everything. Um, and again, I can't speak for how it is now, um, but, you know, I don't want to impugn or, or smear the reputation of, of anyone in leadership roles who was there when I was growing up. The only reason I'm hesitant to say I know it wasn't like a cult at all is that I was a child. I didn't know everything that was going on to all appearances, as far as I can tell, you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was, everything was, was, uh, so when Hare Krishna is uh, functioning well, what what is it like? What does it believe? What does it teach? What what, what do yeah, you do? Yeah, it's very different, you know, because um, it's really different because it's almost like you know you're you're in a subculture that's embedded in this wider culture, and to some degree, each one is constructing your view of the other. And some level, it's like I was like not American. I was Hare Krishna and understanding like the American way of life through that lens. But on another level, I wasn't Hare Krishna or I wasn't Indian. I wasn't Hindu. And I was understanding Hinduism from an American frame or, or set of pre presuppositions and or from almost from a from a Christian or evangelical even um, uh, frame, because, you know, that's so that's so deep in American culture that that you can't help but um, view the world from that lens if you're living in that world. And because the community that I was in was, I wouldn't say it was super insular, you know? And that's another reason why I wouldn't say it was very cult-like, um, you yeah, know, at, yeah. at the time and place, um, you know, where I grew up. Um, so it's very complicated, but you know, that, that, that the religion that we were trying to follow is one which lays a lot of emphasis on vertical relationships. So when you saw the guru, uh, someone who was of a certain status, um, like you might say a priestly status, you were, you were expected to bow down, you pay obeisances, you get down on the floor, you touch your head to the floor, you touch your head to the floor like that um, when you enter the, the temple room uh, to uh, stand in the presence of the, the deities, um, you know, and it's, it's, they call it darshan. And, and it's a whole specialized lingo that you have. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a specialized word for the people who aren't in the in-group. And, and um, you know, and it's, it's, it's its whole little world. And um, I could very easily fall back into that world and that language if I wanted. And I don't even really see anything, you know, terribly problematic or dangerous or scary about it. Um, now, what is that's it? interesting that it's so hierarchical yeah. or, and, and has those physical gestures of it because that's very un-American, right? Yeah. Americans in their regular life might never go and do anything like paying homage or obeisance, right? Like we don't even like bow or curtsy before the president or anything right. like that, right. Right? right? We shake hands with our boss, you know? So 
that that that's an interesting thing that certainly is common in other parts of the world and you can see it in the bible right but is foreign to american culture yeah and and you know it's 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 a different world different etiquette you know like there's this whole elaborate etiquette of um, self-deprecation and uh again like the i guess the language is a huge thing like it's, it, there's just all all this w w would you say jargon um and uh, so if i'm imagining a conversation between two Hare krishnas like I, I i can see differences in etiquette i can see differences in language i can see um, but still all the same human motivations and kind of politics and there's an in-group code yeah. right and if someone else can speak the in-group code you know it and recognize it very quickly. oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. the group that i was in was like that where it has christian ideas but it often has different words for the same christian ideas than yeah. most other groups and so if you use those words with the other people it's like oh i i i see you right you know yeah so yeah. so that we that can is probably relate to a certain degree about that and and for the record you know i i definitely would consider I would definitely consider you a Christian, you know, um, I, I don't think either of us would say you're an orthodox uh, Christian, uh, you know, you're a heterodox Christian, which arguably so am I. Um, but, you know, I would say anybody who I think where the rubber meets the road is like, whether for you, Jesus is the ultimate moral example. It's like Jesus. Why is Jesus so great? He died for the sins of the world. OK, the implication of that, you know, in terms of um, uh, implication for action, i.e. moral significance, i.e. behavioral significance, is he's the ultimate moral example for me to mm -hmm. follow. I have to follow him. Doesn't matter what you say, what you you know, what you say you believe. It's really more about orthopraxy in my view than orthodoxy. It's about it's about. Yeah. Um, uh, and Jesus has unquestioned authority. Now. Right, and and mm -hmm. I think that for you, you would acknowledge Jesus as as like the ultimate moral example. Yeah, and I think and that's in fact, I mean. would even say that biblical Unitarianism can even do a little bit better at making Jesus a moral example because he he's because he's a human, right? And wasn't sort of a divine person who took on a human nature. It, the implication is that his actions are more relatable and even kind of closer to what could be achieved, even if it's not totally possible. But it's even easier to think of him as a moral example because he's more of a human now did you see did you happen to catch my conversation with jacob um i don't think i saw your conversation with jacob no see the the crystal and you're talking about jacob federici of, yes uh yes yes so people people in my audience will probably know jacob also there was a i'm not gonna say it anyway go ahead go ahead cal um uh well you know i i i he's definitely very passionate but you know, I I found him charming. Uh, I you know I think I had a good conversation with him. Um, uh, we did discuss Christology in relation to to Unitarianism, and um, you know I can't just tell people to watch you know X number of videos that I've done with with Y number of people. Like it, it doesn't work like that. But right. but. Um, uh, Christology is difficult to talk about, and sometimes I wish I could just play sound bites of myself where I know I said it, and I said it better than I'll probably <laughs> succeed in saying it here. Um, suffice it to say, what I'll say about that that Unitarianism, Trinitarianism thing, or see, okay, John Hick, the the philosopher of religion, he said that you know, on one level, I'm going to paraphrase it. 
but it's something like if you're talking about God who is omnipresent, uh, omnipotent, um, you know, infinite, um, doesn't have any spatial location or form. If you're going to say that he became a localized, um, uh, limited, uh, partly ignorant, perhaps, um, uh, you know, temptable mortal person, yeah. then, then at that point, you're literally just talking about a square circle. Like there's, there's an impossibility that's embedded in there. And so what I would say in response to that is like, I ask myself this as like a thought question. Can someone who believes that watch a movie like Bruce Almighty, where Morgan Freeman portrays God and mm-hmm. understand what is going on? Or does he have some kind of complete non-cognitivist breakdown where what he's seeing isn't what he's seeing and it's static and it's a square circle and it's like, I have no categories for this. The movie is not even in my memory. It's like, somehow not. And so what's going on, what's happening there is that we understand the sense in which Morgan Freeman is God. And we understand when we, I think, pay attention to it, that it's a very, by its nature, limited and qualified sense. There have to be qualifications because you can't be saying that the, 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 um, the omnipresent God is localized um, or, or, some, or some impossibility of that kind. What you're saying is something I would suggest tentatively as a first step toward understanding it. And I don't claim to understand it. I think it's in, in the limit. It's a mystery. Absolutely. But it's like what that the way to understand it, perhaps, is to understand the person who is God as a as sort of a direct translation of the positive will of God into some medium. And for an example of that, you can think of um, a video game character and how for the purposes of the game, that is you, even though the video game character isn't the player. It, that is, it's not. You've been listening to too much Chris Date. Oh, that's interesting because I, I, I. He have, uses this exact analogy. Oh, that's yeah. interesting because I came on it on my own. There's a lot of things that I uh-huh. say which I imagine have probably been said by other people. But in other words, I would say maybe he says it better than I. Um, that uh, the 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 video game character is not numerically identical to the player. However, if this is the only dimension of your um, account of what it means for Jesus to be the God-man, that's, that would be a heresy such as Valentinianism or um, what's that other one? Do- dosage. Nestor- it would be like Nestorian- Nestorianism where there is like this kind of weak connection between the deity and the human that you're seeing. Um, there's some connection, but it's not a very strong unity. And it's very important to remember that this video game character is not the fullness of the thing. Right. And it's also like a hologram of, of sorts. Yeah. Right? And it's not human. Yeah. And and yeah. Um, and so, you know, I guess there's kenotic uh, models of the incarnation. And then there's the other kind that I don't remember what's that, what that is called. Oliver Crisp is like the other kind. And, and he talks about... Um, a human nature that is like yours or mine, but which is uses the word owned and controlled, I think, and also the word surrounded and interpenetrated by a divine nature. And so it, the question is, is this is ultimately what's here? Is it two minds or is it one? And, and, and almost I wonder if, if the, the, the hemispheres of one's 
uh, brain could serve as an analogy because on some level it's two minds. But when they're informationally integrated, it's also one mind. But it, under analysis, it bears description as two. And if you were to somehow cleave them, then they would be two. Um, and so the question, is it one will or two? Is it one? Is it two persons or one person? Like the meophysitism or the diethelitism versus the monothelitism or whatever. To me, it's almost like I imagine there are semantic levels on which both are true. And um, same thing with kind of um, unitarianism. Like um, maybe I shouldn't venture into this territory if I'm, if I'm sleep deprived to the degree that I am. I, I know Go I said it. it. No, uh, no I, I know I said it once in one of our exchanges. I could possibly dig up those. Oh, dig up those Discord, um, Discord quotes. Um, but um, you know, are we emphasizing the 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 oneness, or are we? You know, I, I I have I have views on the Trinity too, which I don't I don't necessarily know how original they are. I can say I came up with them myself. Something like understanding. Uh, the infinite, i.e., God, as as not just infinite infinity simpliciter, because uh, that in its way would not be infinite. It would it would have the limitation of not being finite or something like that. You can understand it as this kind of tricky dialectical interplay between the infinite and the finite. And I think that a lot of um, a, a lot of um what's happening in theology is perhaps fruitfully viewed from a dialectical lens. Um, notions of this kind of like self-transcendent good that's always like um, beyond whatever concrete iteration of it you presently see and is like a sort of axiological horizon or whatever. Um, uh, you, If you understand the Trinity as a kind of interplay between the infinite and the finite, where you have an unmanifest God that's like the ground of being that's so both and and neither nor that it's like it's it's instantiated in everything, but it is itself it's pure being also in some sense, but in another sense it's pure nothingness. It's just both and neither nor. It's the unlimited, and then you have the manifest God, which is like the the real universe where where real universe means everything real, not just everything physical, and that is subject to a kind of um, Chris Langan type um, um, myriology where it's like it's the self-including set of. Do you want to sets. talk about Chris Langan a little bit? I don't know, man. Is... There's so so many ways to go and say um, he's a, right. a couple a, sentences. Who's Chris Langan and what influence has he had on you? Uh, another amateur philosopher, you might say, um, uh, who currently uh, is a horse rancher and was a bouncer. Uh, in New York, where he came from, and um, he, I think, has some kind of world record for like highest IQ, but no one can reliably measure IQ beyond like 160 anyway. So it's all kind of guesswork. But you know, whatever informed guesswork goes into calculating IQ beyond like um, four standard deviations, he has some claim to having the highest IQ ever measured. And he has very interesting philosophical takes. In my view, they're actually more interesting than anything else that I've seen. Mm -hmm. um but you know my problem every time i bring up Chris what, Langan, when did you encounter langan and how did he influence you that was that was the jumping off point for my sort of propositional come to jesus moment where he awoke you from your um dogmatic uh, slumbers dogmatic slumbers yeah. absolutely 
Yeah. And, and so that was the point where um, uh, materialism gave way to, to theistic idealism. And, mm. and so the, the real universe in Langanian terms is the self-including set of all sets, which reflexively contains itself the same way consciousness does. Um, he, he used the language that um, it involves two dimensions or senses of containment, such that um, it contains its power set in one sense while being contained by its power set in the other sense. And for him, those two senses crucially involve this kind of dotted line on the one side of which you put um, um, cognition, time, syntax, and the, on the other of which you put information, space, and state. These to him are like the two minimal ingredients or conditions of what you would call consciousness. But I'm, he doesn't use the word consciousness. He's, he's, um, and this gets, into, this gets into deep philosophical stuff for which I don't necessarily know if I have time. But I'm saying there's, there's, if, you, if you take panpsychism seriously, there's a sense in which there's this level at which the entire universe is conscious of itself. And may yet, like your and my consciousness, have a certain otherness within itself into which it continually expands, I would say, through love. Um, and I would say we are the part of God's other um, uh, in, in, in his consciousness uh, at, at the level. But see, we're still here talking about it in a sense, finite God, a self-defined God. It's not externally defined, but it's it's the manifest God in the Trinity where there's the unmanifest God. And then there's the relationship there between. So I have a very and do you map those to the persons of the Trinity, or is that well, like you, essence you versus can, persons? You can educate me on this. Is person the right word? Is hypostasis or hypostasis? Is that the right word to mean person? Yeah, it's normally translated person, even though it's a slightly imperfect translation. Because when we say person, we it, um, add a lot of personal characteristics like self consciousness and agency and that sort of thing, even though hypostasis might not really have meant that in greek but it kind of might also have meant that in the way that they were using it so anyway but yeah that the the usual english translation of, of hypostasis or hypostasis is person even though hypostasis really just means underneath thingy <laughs> in greek right eupo right. is under and stasis is just sort of like thingy or stuff or or itness <laughs> the underneath it thing. <laughs> right, right, so. right. And so this is the question, is Cal orthodox or heterodox? Does he mean person or does he just mean underneath thingy? I don't know. I don't know anything. Um, that's the, and, but when I was um, struggling with faith, when I was in grad school, like there was just stuff I couldn't make sense of. Namely the stuff that was like, God is like pure being and he's also somehow pure nothingness. And um, he's absolutely simple, but he's also three persons in one being. And I was like, you know, this isn't rescuing anybody from intellectual, this isn't rescuing any metaphysically illiterate atheist from intellectual bankruptcy because it is itself intellectually bankrupt. Like there's some, there's definitely a there there to classical theism, but as not always the way that it is formulated or understood. And um, uh, for me, Chris Langan was very useful, but as you can see, I have a very potentially heterodox and very at the least dynamic conception of God. Um, and for me, Chris Langan showed me how this, in my opinion, can sail between the Scylla and the Charybdis of process theism and classical theism, or even better, let you see where the truth is on both extremes simultaneously. You need a model in which to interpret theological statements. For me, Langan was very helpful in, in providing that. Mm -hmm. But so, okay. 
So one thing, so I've been um, in my church fathers series, I'm coming up on the Aryan controversy, right? I'm just at the beginning of the Aryan controversy and sort of my homework. And I'm really trying to, you know, understand Arius and understand his opponents and like what they really actually thought and why they thought it, right? Because it's it's way too easy to demonize someone and be like, oh, they were poorly motivated, they were satanic, they were, you know, et cetera, they were stupid and wanted to divide the church. And so that's why they thought what they thought. It's like, right. oh, there are maybe every once in a while some people like that, but most people are not like that. Most people have very good reasons for thinking what they want to think. And so what I think Arius's position was, was that he was a very um, hardcore adherent to divine simplicity right and was very much in that neoplatonic tradition of having the one be beyond being be beyond categorization beyond uh descriptions from any analogy in creation etc so you know a hyper divine simplicity with a very strong sense of transcendence and apathetic approach to um that and so he made that god the father right and he was so apophatic in his approach to the one that he would say things like not even the son knows the father in his essence and that sort of thing right like even the logos is so other from the one that it can't it, it's from the one obviously and is a reflection of the one but it can't even talk about the one even within and the constraints of the I, I tell you i that is something i really struggled with when i was like um a relatively smart guy trying to get into faith in grad school but just still like just not getting it and i think the useful thing that i learned from chris langan is that the infinite is unreferenceable but it's not absolutely unreferenceable that that there's a there's a reflexive um dialectic going on where they to speak of the illimitable is to presuppose a limit if only on a higher order level of predication such that at a lower level of predication there are no predicates or limits and once one realizes that this is what one has done in speaking of the illimitable to have presupposed the limit this kind of kicks the dialectic up into its next phase and it's like okay the infinite is somehow a finite concept because now i'm knowing it in conscious contradistinction to the finite and yet underneath this is it's like somehow the true infinite beneath all binaries of both x and not x and it's like but it's always emergent and and at the cutting edge of some dialectic and once i realize sort of um uh that the the real infinite is like standing just under my feet then i pull that out make that the um uh, the next argument of this reflexive function and it on and on it goes and so there's like like jacob said in his conversation with me it is reflexive like the apophatic it has this reflexive dimension which is another way of saying it's it is unreferenceable but not absolutely so it is and it isn't which is just what you would expect when speaking of this right. kind of um ambiguous infinite right because to say that you can only talk about god in negative terms is to say something about god yes right it, it almost seems to break its own rule in its first sentence in a certain kind of way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think you got on me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then that's, and on some level, it's just, it's just about recognizing that that's the name of the game. Lang in, in his response to criticisms of his self-described theory of everything, which is also a theory of itself, fittingly, um, he talks, you know, he talks about um, how um, 
Gödel's incompleteness theorem um, is transcended, um, is seen to be transcended quickly once we admit these considerations of reflexive self-reference, which is, you know, conventional set theory, it couldn't survive that. Russell and Principia Mathematica. Right, that was Russell's par paradox. And, exactly. or, well, or, who was the guy right before Russell that Russell noticed the paradox within the system of? Oh, was it? It was... Frege? Um, uh, uh, Frege, yes, yeah. So he was making, you know, this giant set theory based, you know, system of all knowledge. And then, um, you know, and then uh, Bertrand Russell talked about barbers who cut their own hair or don't cut their own hair, right? Let the, let the listener understand if they don't know what we're talking about. Right? <laughs> and, um, and then that sort of, uh, you know, shot that whole thing in the foot. And then there was no replacement uh, coming along. And then, and then Goidel, or Gödel, Goidel, Gödel uh, was about at, the, at that same time also. And, and um, Langan wrote this very beautiful like response to those criticisms where he was talking about what happens if you, if you acknowledge that reflexivity is the name of the game. And the, the, way, the beautiful way in which he dismantles these objections, Langan is like nobody else. And the, the problem with Langan is that I get into conversations where people tell me, you're interesting. Where did you learn these cool things? I never heard that before. And I tell, oh, you know, it's not me. Actually, I pretty much stole them from this guy. And, and it's like, oh, who's that? I want to check him out. And then they check him out. And it's like, Cal, I can't believe you fell for this charlatan pseudo-intellectual. I see nothing interesting here. Um, and, and that's always the response. And so on some level, I've despaired of like trying to, like, you don't have to see him as God. I don't see him as God. I don't agree with him on everything. I seriously disagree with him in, on, on many things, in fact. Um, you don't have to agree with everything he says. If you want to check him out, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Uh, to, to sort to of like it's sort of like bringing up Peter's, Jordan Peterson's mm, one person, mm, right? Mm. Like, I can't believe you're interested in this misogynistic, yemenemenemophobic, blah, 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 pseudo-intellectual, pseudo you know? Yeah. Like, he's so simplistic, and he makes all these mistakes, and, right. you yeah. know, how could you find him interesting? It's like, well... Any Jordan Peterson fan can tell you more about what he says that's wrong and repetitive and boring or incorrect than a non-Peterson fan, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something interesting and compelling there. Well, you can watch Langan on his appearance and his um, uh, appearance on uh, Kurt Jaimungle's uh, Theories of Everything channel, and boy, is he interesting! I mean, he's so dangerous. That's the thing. Like, if you you can criticize him all you want, but criticizing him to his face. It's like you better bring your a game because this guy is just he's 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 just like deep smart he's just like a great white shark great white shark he's just like um it, it, it's um it's it's a lot of fun to to watch him like break down his um his uh, uh metaphysical concepts it's also extremely difficult to understand you i'm not smart enough to even say whether the emperor has any clothes what i have understood of him has been tremendously helpful for me in terms of making sense of faith however um i think that when when um we are talking about the god of the bible uh the the the, the central starting point is you know first john 4 16 the god is love um I know it's capital G God, but the God to me somehow has the awkward strangeness appropriate to this kind of God who is simultaneously distant, but also the intimate stranger, the God of the dialectic, at least as experienced from the viewpoint of finite creatures. Um, 
I think a lot of uh, confusion with interpretation of the New Testament would go away if you put the God every time it's said. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. yeah. Jacob is, is um, uh, he's clapping his hands. Um, <laughs> you know, um, ultimately, what I would say about that is that, um, uh, and I, I get sleep, sleep deprived, and for some reason I come out sounding like my father. I was joking with Sam about before before the episode started that, you know, French French speaking people they they just put the emphasis on the exact wrong syllable and and they always say like ultimately instead of you know ultimately they, but you know, ultimately um the if if my concept of jesus prevents me from full fellowship and full communion with my jewish and muslim brothers and my unitarian brothers then it is an idol and it has to be mm -hmm. put away because what dialectically speaking almost you know in this in this tricky self-referential way you know it's like it's like you know he would be an idol if, if, if he stood in the way of communion like that well i mean one thing that i was thinking about when you were talking about your um story earlier and the hari krishna sort of bowing before your guru thing is that I think that a lot of what gets interpreted as worship of Jesus in the New Testament is that sort of behavior that in their minds isn't worship, it's just really high hierarchical gestures of respect and submission and subordination, right? And that, you know, okay, so Jesus, you know, stills the storm, and then all of his disciples fall down and worship him. And then, you know, uh, you know, a modern person's like, oh, they're worshiping him. You can only worship God. He's God. No, it's like they are recognizing his authority and power with a physical gesture. Not the same thing as like capital W worship, right? And not the same thing as making Jesus your idol. Yes. And, you know, there are, um, there are ways in which I could try to understand it in terms of, you know, the sort of guru concept that I grew up with and the guru as God's representative on earth. And a symbol mm -hmm. for God. And you know, and here's the thing, what I was saying about the claim that this man is God necessarily being a very qualified claim, probably when you fully fleshed out what that meant, it wouldn't be as different in meaning as, as one initially supposed uh, between what you think it means. And that's why right. I would also, for that reason, not so quickly decry Unitarians. And that was why I really enjoyed the conversation between you and Keith Ward in which he said, you're 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 catching flat from these people who see themselves as enforcing boundaries but as a matter of fact they do not know where those boundaries are they affirm propositions but they don't know how what those you know how those cash out in more specific terms they're just repeating formulas as slogans of tribal membership which you know whose boundaries are ultimately just do you say the slogan despite not actually knowing what it means like not in detail like not really um, or do you not say the slogan? And if you don't say the slogan, you can't fellowship with me. You're not Christian. Mm -hmm. I'm not with that. That, that you know, that's that's um, that's um, that I I don't think Jesus would have been with that. Um, I liked I I liked my conversation with Keith Ward a lot. That was one of my favorites that I ever had. But there was also this weird uncanny moment where it's like, okay, either I am I have been an Orthodox Trinitarian all along, or Keith Ward is actually a secret heretic. Right. And it's like, I'm not sure which of those is true. <laughs> right, right. And it recalls when in my conversation with Jacob, he said, I don't so far, I don't see how this is different 
from 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 uh, from Judaism, and I said I'm not sh so sure that when the limit of theological accuracy is reached, so to speak, I realize the contradiction yeah. in what I just said, that they will have to be distinguished. Mm. Whoever it's coding languages is almost how I want to see it. Where in other words, it's like you can code in Java, you can code in Ruby or whatever, um, um, and and um, some coding languages are it lets you do some things easily capture some features of spiritual reality easily and others um uh let you capture others easily Our castle. yeah 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 and um so uh everybody has a valid coding language because they're not idiots the kabbalists um who write such interesting things about the relationship between god's sovereignty and human freedom are not idiots um, it's not just because they didn't have our, you know, uh, they didn't, you know, they didn't have the NIV um, that that these people are spiritual ignorami or, or what have you. Everyone who has, I know the people who translate the NIV might be spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not even that wasn't even my intention to go after that. But, but um, uh, um, you know, everybody who has sought God with their whole heart, soul, and mind. And God knows your intentions. That's the thing. You can't game God on a technicality. God sees your intentions and not what you just spout off. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think everybody who has sought God earnestly has seen something of God. I also think that everyone is uniquely in the image of God such that your creation was so necessary in the limit to his self-expression that it is as if there is something that he had to say about himself that he couldn't say without creating. Um, yeah. This uh, is this is going to be a perfect transition to talking about universalism and annihilationism, which we which we should do. Um, I have to go in about thirty five minutes, which maybe will be enough time to do the subject a little bit of justice. But so I I forget if I mentioned this because I, I, we had a botched fake recording and then the real recording. Just in case um, I did I didn't say in this recording, Cal has a podcast, Universalism Against the World. Um, and you mainly focus on the subject of universalism, uh, universal reconciliation versus its alternatives. Um, and you had a conversation with John Parksees um, recently on that. And then you had a couple episodes where you were commenting on a Chris Date video. Um, I, I, of course, have an interesting relationship with Chris Date. I've debated him and had him on my channel and made a commentary video on one of his debates that wasn't particularly, um, I tried to be kind, but it wasn't necessarily very appreciative. Um, but Chris Date and I both agree on annihilationism. And one thing that's interesting is like my weird group believed and taught annihilationism. I, we didn't use that word, right? Like I didn't know that word maybe until I was like 28. Uh, just in the same way, I actually didn't grow up calling myself a biblical Unitarian. I didn't know that word until I was in my mid to late 20s. I just heard that. And I was like, what does that mean? Oh, that's me. Interesting. Like growing up, we just said, we don't think Jesus is God. That We didn't have a label or a word or a neologian for our belief. It's just like, we don't believe in the Trinity. We don't think Jesus is God, right? And also, we don't think the dead are in heaven. We think the dead are dead. We don't think that you're going to be in hell forever. We think that you just cease to exist on Judgment Day if you're if you're bad, right? Like we didn't have a categorical label for it. But but when I heard annihilationism, I was like, oh yeah, that, yeah, that's right. So I grew up being taught that, and I know almost nobody who gets who grows up in a group that explicitly teaches annihilationism. 
Annihilationism is growing in popularity seemingly recently in evangelical circles. Um, and that, you know, a lot of people like Chris Date and Preston Sprinkle are sort of doing a good job of kind of popularizing it and making it seem more palatable and not as heretical and stuff like that and making a biblical case for it. And it is seemingly kind of having a moment. But I, but almost no one that I know that changes their mind to believe in annihilationism grew up that way. They almost all grew up eternal conscious torment people. I'm one of the few people I know besides the other people in my group that was actually taught that as a kid. And so I think that gives me a different, I don't know, approach or perspective on this question. So anyway, universalism, annihilationism, you're, you're on mute at the moment. Okay. You know, unfortunately, just because I am so uh, kind of divigating and off topic, I will backtrack to what I said before we segued and then I'll resegue back. Sure. Um, because I'm conscious of having finished my sentences in my current state of sleep deprivation, but not having finished my points. So what I was saying <laughs> is that I, I suspect it's like, you know, with respect to each person, they were so necessary to God's self-expression that there was something he had to say about himself that he couldn't say without creating them. And, and um, this gets into what it means for God to be all in all, like a father cannot be all in all without all of his children. Um, um, but it's also like there's a room in God that only you can enter, Sam. And it's like there's something that there is to say about God that only you understand. Um, it's like your white stone name or something like that. Um, and and um, so, you know, I think it's, it's not just um, denominational or religious but it's also like personal anyway so i'll just say that and um uh yeah regarding annihilationism is fascinating because um as you said you were one of the exceptions that would have grown up believing it um and um it, and it's not a it's not a thing of major importance um you know at least not in terms of i, I should say i would say confessional um separation and boundaries um although a lot of churches do have eternal conscious torment on their statement of faith Yes, yes, and uh, you know, Chris Date is not able to uh, have a have a, a a good faith dialogue with his uh, theological um, not hero, but but you know something close to that, um, James White. You know, mm -hmm. and that's sad to see because James White is not charitable, not sufficiently charitable, I would say, to to Chris Date. And you know, I think sure. Chris Date, I think Chris Date, he struggles with himself, but he's he's. He kind of he he comes off harsher than he even means to, but yeah. I, but I think that the way James White is dealing with him is like kind of like kind of really past the limit of like how you should treat. Uh, I I haven't been aware of how James White has been treating Chris. Well, you know, there's a way he he treats a lot of people in ways that the 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 online Christian community. Uh, can sometimes find objectionable. Now, the thing is, the whole thing is like, are you an online Christian community? And is that leading to the wrong kind of exchanges in the first place? It's like, fair enough. I didn't mean to go down that way. You know, I've, I've been trying to make sense of annihilationism. I've been trying to understand it like inside retributive justice. And I've been trying to understand it outside that. I've been trying almost to understand it from the first person point of view. Like if I were annihilationist, um, what form of it would I hold? Because, you know, it seems that there are certain trade-offs. Um, uh, you know, like, I, I, I ask weird questions. In some level, I ask juvenile questions. Like, mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, I may have to read from my phone just so that I can remember. Oh my goodness, message is blowing up. Um, just so that I can remember the wording. Um, I sent it to you. See. Oh, here. Okay. So is it right, for example, that Hitler just be quietly annihilated? In other words, it, would it be right for Hitler that his only afterlife should be no afterlife? Um, you know, where the, and I know not all annihilationists believe this, but I'm kind of laying out what I think is a dilemma. I, I'm the worst at explaining things. I explain things all out of order, but there's some kind of dilemma I sense where an annihilationist simultaneously wants to affirm and deny this, this statement that, um, that um, somehow capital punishment is the, is the perfect one-size-fits-all punishment for every sinner. And I feel like there's simultaneously a, 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 a magnetism and a repulsion. And there's problems that happen from both denying it and affirming it, as far as I can see. From within a framework of retributive justice, you can zoom off and, and find some basis other than retributive justice to impose annihilation as a penalty, or not even a penalty. You might just say- As a consequence. A consequence mm -hmm. of your decision, your own free decision to part ways with the infinite God, who, who alone is the source of life and existence. Um, mm -hmm. But even that has issues. And I'm trying to stay on topic because I go, I just jump around and go, get all out of order. But, you know, like to give you a flavor of the kind of juvenile almost questions that I ask, um, but I sense a dilemma in it. Um, is it right that Hitler just be quietly annihilated? Uh, the answer in this dialogue, which is imaginary, is that no, he has to be tortured some amount beforehand. And then the question is, is there any amount he can be tortured that would be enough? And if yes, why not let him go? after his sentence was served or after he has paid the last penny, so to speak. And then the answer is there is no amount of torture that would be enough. So then the question is, if there's no amount that would be enough, then why even try? Why only torture him some random or arbitrary or unprincipled amount? More pressingly, if, 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 there's, no, if there's no amount of torture that would ever be enough, then why not go full ECT and you know, just torture him forever? And so... Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not saying, oh, Sam, I just destroyed you. Uh, uh, I, I'm saying like, I in, in these imaginary... And like I said, if you destroy annihilationism, you just prove its point. Exactly. Just as only universalists are saved. <laughs> you, you must understand. Um, but um, see, the point is, and, and it's like a real philosopher could lay it out more technically. But in these dialogues, I sense a tension that I want to explore. Where if you, <laughs> if you affirm the the what i call the left wing of the dilemma which is terminology that makes no sense but it's like if you affirm if you go if you just go because there's the left point the middle point and the right point if you choose the left point of just saying um uh, no it's fine that ultimately he has no afterlife the petty criminal has no afterlife and um god is not in the business of just inflicting torture for its own sake and you have to deal with it because god's not petty Mm -hmm. It's like on one level, I see the rationale to a degree, but some other people are going to be like, God's justice has gone out the window because these people are just in the same bucket now somehow. And it's mm -hmm. like Hitler cheated death, you know, he, or rather he cheated justice. He by, cheated. He cheated justice in this world through suicide, through suicide. In other words, it's like Hitler wasn't afraid of death. Like the spiritual death is the thing he was avoiding by choosing physical death or thought he was avoiding. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's like, that's the left point and that like that's what comes from um uh, uh 
uh, affirming that um, uh, that capital punishment is somehow the perfect one size fits all punishment for every mm-hmm. sinner, and there's tension there. There's a problem. So and and you don't want to you don't um, you don't want to answer all the way right and say yeah he should be tortured and there's no amount of torture that would be enough because that makes you effectively ECT arguably. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the middle is like, well maybe he should be tortured, but then the question is, um, can he ever be like how to put it? There's, he gets ten gigawatts of torture. Right, right, right. right. Where, whereas like, some pretty nice guy who messed up in a couple ways. He gets a tenth a gigawatt of torture, and then he's annihilated. Right, right. right. We've right. weighed you on the scale, and um, we're setting the dial on the annihilator uh, machine to, um, you know, be correlated with the amount of injustice that you perpetrated in your life. And then at the end, you're zapped out of existence, or something. Right. That that that's sort of something like the question that you're asking. Yes, and and what I appreciate about annihilationism, I'll say, is that. The basis is not philosophical; it's scriptural, and so for uh, you know. But what I would say coming back is that is that um, I I understand um, the principle that you should, as much as possible, perhaps try to take scripture at face value, until what you end up with is ridiculous. At which point you recognize the need for some uh, less than literal uh, interpretation, or of course, even the categories of figurative and literal are to some degree problematic. But I just mean to the extent that the face value thing, you know, like like Chris Date almost saw it like literally in terms of bodies rising out of graves. And it's like, well, you know, what if the molecules of which they had been composed are not are now scattered across the earth? What if they're in other corpses? What if they're in the bodies of living? That's an age old objection. It's kind of funny reading through the church fathers. They actually have to deal with that particular question in the pagan period pretty often wow. because the pagans thought that resurrection was ridiculous because well what if your body got eaten by a coyote and yeah. you know and the molecule and, and what if you dissolved or what if i chopped you in 100 pieces and and you know okay so if someone ate you and then they die is the, are those molecules part of their body or, or your body right you know yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Th- those sorts of questions actually were apparently something that both jews and christians had to deal with quite a bit when justifying the um the doctrine of resurrection back in the day and and the the answer was almost always god will figure it out god god does everything god's all powerful i don't need to answer all of these what if you got eaten by a coyote question uh god god can do it and god could make new material if he needed to god could find the material he wanted if he needed to etc right but but um i mean i i think that one thing that Oh, man, I have a lot that I... I There's more to... that I can say about the Hitler dilemma. That's the thing. You you, you invited um, an insomniac amateur philosopher onto your uh, <laughs> show, and I woke up at 3 a.m. this morning, and that's the first thing I started thinking. Well, not the first thing, but I was thinking about it, and, um, you know, it's like I haven't stopped thinking about it. Like, it's ridiculous how much I can subdivide the infinite continuum and, like, go into, like, more and more nuance of, like, the... the, the... Well, that's one thing that, that's very interesting about you, Cal, is you can keep a train of thought going for a very long time yeah. and stick with a, an idea or a problem or a question for a very long time, and that Despite gives you a lot of so insight. having so much ADD that I can't read people. Yeah, well, it's it's ADD about some things, but extreme hyperattention about other things. Well, it's almost like dyslexia in the sense that I don't have dyslexia. I actually have a almost... um almost photographic memory for, 
for spelling. I don't, I don't understand things in terms of photographic images. I actually have synesthesia for letters. Um, but um, uh, uh, so I'm not dyslexic, but I am dyslexic in the sense that I don't comprehend what I read unless someone reads it to me. And even then it's spotty because my attention will wander, but, but I have issues reading. There's another issue besides the ADD. No. So I, I recognize that on some level, I'm just reinventing the wheel all the time on these different issues, but it's faster for me than finding the source and reading it. Yeah. Um, so uh, one thing that I'll say growing up annihilationist is that the way that I often thought about it is that it really just turns eternal life into a really big gift right and it's sort of the default assumption that everyone is going to be destroyed right like you know like everybody's coming to an end it's almost similar to like materialism and and actually annihilationists are often have a strong materialist or physicalist bent right chris date is that way and those two things are often correlated although i don't think they need to be joined necessarily but they do appear to be correlated oftentimes and that it really just makes eternal life the exception right and the the gracious exception that gets given through christ right whereas you know everyone being destroyed sort of kind of just sort of makes sense as as the default and in that sort of sense, it's not, I don't know, I, you know, your justice questions, I'm not saying that they're, they're dumb or they're juvenile, but I, I'm saying that, yeah, and you kind of alluded to this, that maybe that's just not the framework that you often think about it through. And I'm not saying it's an invalid framework, but I think that you're right, that I don't often think about it in terms of justice. I think about it in terms of, I don't know, some, something else. Like another thing that I've noticed recently is if I were to give something of like a philosophical argument for annihilationism, well, like my, when I've been talking with John Verveke recently and sort of going through sort of something like a platonic Darwinism or something like yes. that, right? Where there's like the form of the polar bear. Yeah. And that in Those some, are some sense very is, high quality videos, by the way. Like, well, thank you. Yeah. I, I really enjoy them. And I feel like I've been pushing myself uh, for those and that I, I spent a lot of time thinking in preparation for talking with John Verveke, partially because I find him intimidating, but partially because, you know, I, I, he, he can stretch you in a way that that is good. But so like platonic Darwinism and annihilationism work really well together because like, okay, so in order to last forever, you would need to be the perfect polar bear, right? because the perfect polar bear would be immortal and eternal and would always be accomplishing the purposes of polar bearhood, right? But the polar bears that we see now are a reflection to an imperfect degree of the form of the polar bear. And for that reason, they can't last forever, right? And, and they, they both can't and will not last forever, right? There's this sort of annihil annihilationistic effect of imperfection, right? That imperfection and mortality and finitude are all sort of the same thing, right? And that the only thing that could last forever is that which is perfect. And that which is perfect by definition will last forever, right? Those two things, you know, tie together. 
And so what's the perfect form of humanity? Well, it's Jesus Christ, right? Yes. And I would even say it is the resurrected Jesus, right? I'm not, I don't even think baby Jesus was perfect yet. He was not sinful, right? Jesus never sinned throughout his life, and at no point was he sinful, but he was made perfect through what he suffered, right? The book of Hebrews is perfectly explicit about yes. that. It says it like four or five times. Yes. And that that like I, I think of Jesus as sort of like being like merging with the form of humanity, right? Which is sort of his and that's what I sort of think of as his connection with the logos is right. There's this eternal form of humanity that is eternal, but it's sort of inert, right? Because it, it's in that kind of eternal realm of unchanging forms. And then Jesus, through the crucifixion, sort of like at the very moment of his death, he finally reaches his perfection. And then that's sort of why the grave could not contain him. And then resurrected Jesus is perfect, eternalized humanity form. And the only way that we'll ever get to last forever is if we get conformed to the image of Christ. And if we don't, then there's no way that we could last forever. And annihilationism is just the logical consequence of that, right? And and that that's sort of one way that I've noticed. And like, I don't know if my if my latent childhood annihilationism has pushed me and seen things in that direction, or if my sort of completely what seemed originally like a completely different train of thought of trying to integrate Darwinism with my Christianity, because that's always been a central tension in my life, then kind of looped back in a way that sort of remade sense of annihilationism from a different angle, other than just the sort of purely scriptural exegetical argument. And there's so many ways I could go with this. Um, you know, it does also make me think of my own question, whether the implicit universalism of my the religion in which I was raised somehow colors um, you know, the way in which I, I see Christianity, but I don't know, you know, I want to, I want to say the answer is no, that I'm coming to that conclusion for different reasons. But um, now, you know, what you say is interesting because, because there's the, the annihilationist, AKA conditionalist presupposition that the continued existence of your soul, if, if that's even the word you want to use, is not a given, it is conditional. And, and, um, and so for me, just looking at it um, as a as a philosopher, which again not as an exegete, admittedly, um, what that means is that creates some. Um, it means there has to presumably be some kind of divine rationale. If once a person dies, their soul is sustained in being, and or their body is resurrected um, after they first died, and then understanding it again through a lens of retributive justice, which, you know, arguably is not the lens you should use. But then again, it's like, what, restorative justice? No, but but um, uh, something else, distributive justice, procedural justice, I don't even really know what those are, to be quite honest. I didn't go to law school. Uh, uh, and um, so, but looking at it from a standpoint of retributive justice, um, to try and understand the resurrection or even the continued you know sustenance of that soul and being in an intermediate state after death it's hard to understand from the standpoint of retributive justice because ordinarily justice is like this operation that exists um some imbalance in the status quo but arguably on annihilationism um the status quo is what justice requires and so it's a redundant operation um 
Yeah, I, I see your point that for an annihilationist, why is there a resurrection of the unjust and then a second death, right? Um, but although I will say it is interesting that Revelation does seem to, you know, have that second death, which does seem to kind of answer the conundrum, if not maybe giving a perhaps a moral reason for it. But. Well, you, well, you know what Revelation also seems to have? Because when we first got, one of our first exchanges that made me think about this was, you know, in reference to annihilation, you said it's not an infinite punishment because the punishment is finitude itself. And if you go talking about infinite finitude, is that not like a square circle? But I think what I meant was infinite non-existence as distinct from finite non-existence, where like a person disappears and comes back, which weirdly seems to happen in Revelation with the kings and nations, unless you imagine that unwritten um, is the assumption that actually, no, they're different kings and nations, bro. But, um, you know, it's like that's what weirdly seems to happen is like they're gone and then they're back, just like in the Old Testament, his wrath is going to be on you forever. And then, oh, it's, you know, he, he relents and he doesn't he doesn't. His wrath does not abide forever, and etc. Um, you know, um, but um, and I and I cut you off. Revelation it has you were saying a it has an annihilation right on the second death. Mm -hmm. Yes, right where, where there is this sort of everyone dies, and then you get resurrected for Judgment Day, and then you are either immortalized. Um, Although sometimes it even seems that the resurrection of the just is at a different time than the resurrection of the unjust. Um, uh, and premillennialism has that as part of its scheme, right? Because Jesus returns and then the living Christians uh, meet the, the dead resurrected Christians in the air, right? Thousand years. Then there's the judgment day of the unjust and then, you know, the, the destruction of the unjust, which seems unnecessarily complicated if i had to be perfectly honest but nevertheless seems to be at least a pretty good interpretation of what the text seems to be trying to say yes um and so what what is the purpose of that then right why not just leave them dead right or, or something like that you know it's a good question and it, it, it's an interesting question so what's the purpose of judgment day for an unjust person right so let's imagine that we just take the sort of, you know, the story that I, you know, grew up being taught that, you know, when you're dead, you're basically um, asleep, right? It's an unconscious uh, um, intermediate state, right? I can even remember my pastor using an analogy like God, it's almost like God puts your soul on a CD-ROM and then stores it. And then in Judgment Day puts it back in the computer and boots you back up again right so it's like in some sense you exist but also don't exist in the intermediate state and you get turned back on for uh judgment day and then you have to give an account right that's a very common new testament theme to him you know you must give an account right and then judgment day itself is a common theme in the new testament and then you know seemingly you get judgment given on to you and there's even an implication that some people will be judged more harshly than others, right? It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than it will be for you because, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have Jesus, right, you know, preaching to them. But you, uh, Capernaum or wherever, you know, you guys had Jesus teaching to you and you still didn't repent. So your judgment will be harsher 
than that of even Sodom and Gomorrah's. All right. Okay. So there's seemingly everyone gets annihilated, but yet there's also a continuous scale of how intense your judgment is. So is that like what I said earlier, there's the annihilation machine that gets set to different levels of severity um, where, you know, uh, where Hitler gets tortured worse than just the intermediate Nazi prison guard. Uh, and he's even treated more nicely than, say, a Russian soldier. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Like, and then there's annihilationism. And and then, so what's the point of the punishment, right? Right, right, right. Is the point of the, the punishment just a retribution, right, without any restoration, right? Because it's not like the goal of the punishment is to make you a better person on the other side because you're going to be a not person on the other side, right? So, I, I mean, I see your point. And I'm not entirely sure what the answer is. I what, One purpose of punishment is deterrence, right? The promise of punishment is a deterrent for bad behavior in the present, right? And so that that's at least a way that that could be understood rationally, I guess, or an argument for it. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the... the problem is if we want to go down the road of the hitler dilemma it's like i've only scratched the surface you know on, uh, on some level like the the problem but you know i don't even know if that's the appropriate response to all that you just said to just you know drill down into some kind of you know really micro thing um uh you know you're talking about like you know like a person being on a cd-rom it's like what is a person is a person the matter of their body so like to be resurrected on the last day it implies that you are resurrected out of the molecules that were in your body when your body died as opposed to the it's the ship of theseus you know are you familiar yeah. with that and yeah, so yeah. is is the ship the, of also the cd rom analogy shows that i grew up in the 90s but in any case <laughs> is, is the the ship of theseus is it the ship which presently sails or is it all the pieces of wood which now lie on the ocean floor um mm. and um and then the question is you talk about a virtual machine, like a computer. So, you know, you say ship of Theseus makes you say, okay, it's not the matter, it's the pattern. You know, in your, in your brain, they say that um, the, the rate of molecular turnover for your brain cells, accepting the cytoplasm, um, is something like 100% every three months. Um, so, you know, if the ship of Theseus tempts you to answer, it's not the matter, it's the pattern, you can then raise the question of, you know, how much does your pattern stay the same? If the virtual, you got the virtual machine of Theseus, um, and there it's like the, 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 the distinction between what is called qualitative identity and numerical identity, it collapses. To be the same virtual machine is to be in the same pattern. But then the pattern changes. And then, so the question for me is like, what is the real essence of the self to me? It is, um, uh, is narrative. It's, it's, um, it's, it's this kind of, um, well, every composite phenomenon has a kind of essence that is nothingness, and it is only through the possession of that nothingness that it has a coherent identity through time, paradoxically. And same thing with the narrative that you are. But even the narrative can degrade, say, through dementia. Now God can restore everything, even down to the molecules of which you were last composed. That's a given. But in, in what does the stability of the self reside? It, it's a tremendous question. Because I used to work at a, a, at a nursing home, and, um, uh, you know, I was, I was in the position of, um, I was working with people in the, in the memory care unit. Um, and, um, 
you know, it, it certainly made me made me think about that. And um, there were just things like you know, when I when I had that kind of psychedelic experience, um, it was it was microdosing on LSD, not at work. Um, but I, I asked I asked the LSD a question, which you can do with your on psychedelics, which is weird. And it's like, you know, uh, uh, I would certainly caution anyone who who sees themselves sees themselves in a in a uh, direct and and explicit relationship with God against doing psychedelics. But I my faith was weak at that time. But you know, I had this image of like systems degrading succumbing to entropy and I did my best to kind of prop them up helping them do puzzles and at the end of the day we would break down the puzzle um, and it was for nothing and and what they learned they lost because their own um, you know neurons were degrading so to speak and I thought you know I was I was I was thinking if there is a God then what is the purpose of all this entropy and then the, what it told me was, if you want the limit of order, go to the Big Bang where there is no life. That that this um, that as this order decreased, a higher order order rose, and it was the precondition um, that that this entropy that you hate was the pre was the precondition of being. Um, and um, and then I asked it, well. <laughs> Okay, then why do I exist? And it said you were created uniquely to reflect God's light, like the, like the the facet of a of a jewel. And um, uh, so, um, was it was it was it the substance talking? Was it me that I was able to talk to myself, you know, in a in a more integrated way that was like more from the heart? I don't know. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of what I think of when I think about, you know, persons and their, their degradation and things like that. Um, uh, you know, it seemed to me a more, I don't know, we don't have much time left. It, it seemed to me a more, um, I don't know, interesting answer than, uh, than, than the, 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 the nuances of the Hitler dilemma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I want to talk to you more about this because I'm not – I. I haven't thought about the annihilationism, universalism thing nearly as much as I think about the Trinity, right? Because it's, I guess, not as pressing or relevant. Um, and honestly, I feel like it's way, way easier to make a scriptural case for annihilationism than it is for biblical Unitarianism. There are a lot more difficult passages and harder nuance to make, you know, there's a lot more, I guess, ammunition against me. The, uh, for... the whole Unitarianism, Trinitarian, I mean, the annihilationism thing is complicated enough to even know what you're talking mm -hmm. about and why. And But the yeah. Unitarianism, Trinitarianism thing, it just blows blows me apart conceptually, really. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's, it seems to be touching on deeper philosophical stuff, not that Unitarian, or not that Universalism, Annihilationism doesn't, but like the Trinity question goes like right to the root of ontology very quickly, yeah. right? And then that, that gets complicated to talk about. Um, but I, I don't know, one thing, yeah, I guess quick a quick 30 second thing, one thing that also sort of always made sense to me is like the, 
like the flood, I feel like is mm. the foreshadow of, of eternal judgment, right? Okay. Almost everything in Christ has an Old Testament foreshadow, right? And almost every Old Testament okay. thing is a foreshadow of something to come, right? So if we take the flood as the foreshadow of the judgment, which Second Peter like sort of explicitly says, right? You know, basically everybody was wiped out except for the people on the ark because of Noah, right? And so like, you know, okay, the ark is like the cross. It's made out of wood. Jesus is Noah, right? He's the faithful one whom God, you know, saw favor in, right? And Jesus and his bride and the family, and um, in some sense, a microcosm of creation, right? Get to survive the onslaught. And then after the onslaught, then there's the new creation. Right. right, 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 and 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 that it, it seemingly is like a perfect analogy for uh, annihilationism. Right, right, and the thing is, it's sort of in the character of that experience that I shared. It's like it raises the question of whether reintegrate uh, disintegration is the condition for reintegration, and death is the condition for resurrection. And then the question is just how fractal is that pattern, though? In other words, is it just does that fractality terminate? Uh, when we get to the fate of individuals or is it that they themselves undergo a destruction so that there can be a resurrection uh for everyone mm. and then you know continually in every moment dying to themselves to live out agape you know unto the age of ages um uh in every moment in every choice um dying to themselves in agape dying sacrificing the false self to find the true self and the other to borrow a phrase from luke yeah unfortunately i really need to go yeah but... i know this this was fun, Cal, and we should we should talk again. I feel like we only warmed up. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and hopefully, maybe I'll catch you on a day where you had a little bit better sleep. I I also had to wake up at three a.m., but then I got to go back to sleep at like three thirty. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> of uh, a baby, but uh, so <laughs> I guess that was the difference. All right. Well, it was but, a pleasure. All right. I'm sure we'll talk again. And yes. I'd be happy to go on your podcast sometime. Or, yeah, or, your standing invitation. All right. Sounds good. God bless. All right. Okay. Um, I got to run.